welcome to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast, where building a thriving real estate investing business has less to do with subway tile and shiplap and everything to do with whether you've laid a solid foundation to support the life of your dreams. I'm your real estate lawyer turned legal educator host, Bonnie Galam. In my years building a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio, the most important lesson I've learned is that being a successful real estate investor isn't about secret strategies or ninja tactics. It's about doing the basic stuff right and staying laser focused. If you're an ambitious real estate investor or one in the making who's looking to build a real estate portfolio that's secure, streamlined, and creates a life you love, you're in the right place. Each week here on the show, you'll get clear, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you build your real estate business and some tough love along the way to make sure you're not building a house of cards. Let's get started. Hey there, I'm Bonnie Gallum, host of the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. Guys, I am really excited for this week's episode because we are kicking off financing month. And this month, I'm going to be chatting about legally financing your real estate portfolio because unless you're following the Dave Ramsey method of 100% cash on investment properties or your Dave Ramsey yourself, but if that's you, if you're a 100% cash investor, shoot me a DM on Instagram at BonnieGallumESQ because I want you on the pod. But in all seriousness, most of us are using someone else's money. And I think you know learning and understanding more about borrowing money is really important because it can help you scale your portfolio faster when you know, you know how to leverage this stuff. And most importantly, not make any of the really messy legal mistakes. I've seen various real estate investors from private money lenders to flippers to house hackers make. And so if you are currently using financing in your real estate investing business, then this episode and this month will really be perfect for you as it will give you the steps and tools you need to legally harness the power of financing, but also make sure you're not making mistakes along the way. So if you've got questions, I want to make this quick note about legally financing your real estate investing business, whether you're a flipper, a landlord, or using some other, you know, creative investing strategy, then I want to invite you to head over to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Facebook group. I just asked about what everyone's questions are so I can answer them in the Q&A episode. I will be recording that this week. So do not delay, head on over and get that your questions over in the Facebook group. I'd be more than happy to answer your burning money questions when that episode drops in two weeks. So some of the main topics we'll be covering today include One, making sure that you have enforceable interest rates in your contracts and making sure that you understand, you know, what the problems are that can arise if you don't. Second, we're going to talk about some of the risks that come with cross-collateralization and what that total mouthful of a word means. And I'll share with you the story of a flipper who basically created a Ponzi scheme out of his portfolio. And then finally, I want to, if you want to dive into the area of private money, either as a lender or a borrower, I want to make sure you understand that, you know, you've got to get the right documents in place to make sure both sides' obligations are respected. And so that's how we'll wrap up this week's episode. At the end of the episode, though, make sure you visit my website where you can find the show notes, plus any of the links I mentioned today over at bonniegallum.com 32, or using the link right in your podcast player. And if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure that you subscribe so you're always the first to know when new episodes are released. So let's dive in because financing and nailing the borrowing money stuff is absolutely key, absolutely key to the long-term growth of your real estate investing, whether you are using FHA financing or private money or commercial loans or hard money with the intent to borrow. The power of leverage of what I call OPM, other people's money, is incredible. But 
just like, you know, Spider-Man's powers, which I'll admit are heavily on my mind today because my son is inseparable from his Spider-Man Halloween costume. But just like Spidey, our great powers of leverage come with great legal responsibility, which you think is an assumption, to be honest, but it's funny. It's almost like there's these two legal extremes of borrowing money for real estate investors. If you've ever taken a loan from a bank, be it FHA, conventional, commercial, something else, just like a bank loan, it often feels like you are signing away your firstborn at the closing table. And you've probably heard the jokes from your attorney or your title rep who's doing the closing about, you know, getting hand cramps when you're doing the signing and all the, you know, the legal mumbo jumbo that banks put in there. But it's like anything that has ever gone wrong with a loan ever in the history of lending ends up in a new document for you to sign at the closing table. And one of my favorite ones, because yes, I am a nerdy lawyer who has a favorite ridiculous closing document. Don't judge me or judge me. I don't care. So it's the document. Yeah. And I'm sure you've signed this, that banks make you sign that if you default on the loan, it will be reported to the credit reporting agencies, which is also tied in with the doc that if you don't pay, you can get your house foreclosed on and lose the house. And let me tell you, good grief, if you are reaching the closing table and don't know that, you need a better lender, possibly a better agent and attorney, and to spend, I don't know, at least 30 seconds on the internet looking at what actually having a mortgage means. But we can all chuckle or roll our eyes at borrowers who are so blissfully aware, blissfully aware of the basics. But Real estate investors can seriously take it to the next level when they step away from what I'll call like the comforts of bank financing. You know, we're stepping away from the big banks into the wild world of creative financing and, you know, private money lenders and hard money lenders or syndications, money partners, sub twos, you know, maybe you've got that proverbial rich uncle or something. And it's like the pendulum swings the complete opposite direction. They want the loan docs to be as short as humanly possible, which yes, you know, the loan package stack will be much smaller than a bank loan package, but it still has to cover the fundamental guys. And, you know, unlike with bank financing, where you actually have very little ability to negotiate the terms, if at all, in the creative finance space, you have a lot of that flexibility. And so you have to be really careful and make sure you read every last word of these documents. And, you know, the behind the scenes reality of the financing world is that the traditional, you know, consumer level financing, your FHA loans, your conventional loans are governed by so much regulation and oversight. And that's particularly the case due to the subprime mortgage disaster of the mid to late 2000s. But the banks don't even have the wiggle room to change the loan docs, even if you wanted to. They are so consumer protected that those documents, you just kind of have to know what it's about and then sign off of it. You're, if you ever wanted to sit there and read that your attorney will probably look at your title rep, he will probably say, oh my gosh, we've got a reader on our hands. But And we just joke about that because short of, you know, your name being misspelled or the property address being wrong or the interest rate being off, which that one I've never seen. I have seen the other two mistakes. There's not a whole lot we have to read. It's very form. It's the same documents over and over and over again. But the legalities of the creative financing space are a bit more like the Wild West. There's not a whole lot of laws out there covering it. And so there's some basic lending rules and principles that apply. But beyond that, the lenders can make up a lot of what their terms are, which means you as the borrower potentially need to understand them and their implications. And inside of Landlord Law School, I have a whole section on legally financing your portfolio for this reason, because what I've seen in my firm is that creative financing, the private money lenders, the hard money lenders, the syndications, even partnerships be are between people. And I mean that literally, people. It's individuals and you know some small businesses, particularly in the hard money space, but they're not Bank of America. <laughs> they're not Bank of America with the, you know, a huge legal department 
that would, you know, make your head spin with the amount of lawyers and red tape that goes on there. Largely, it's people using templates. Not necessarily, and I'd say very rarely, lawyers using templates. And so one of the legal issues I've seen pop up on even lawyer-drafted templates is around interest rates. I've seen, you know, part private money lenders or her money lenders pay an arm and a leg for these lawyer-drafted lending packages because I've charged it, and then pop in a totally illegal interest rate, which could create possibly a totally unenforceable contract or a partially unenforceable contract, which is no bueno. And so let me tell you a little bit story about the little developer who couldn't. <laughs> so this particular developer wanted to build a commercial property on vacant land that he already owned. He had a bank that he was working with to line up the construction loan, but it was looking to borrow like another 60, 70,000 to get the ball rolling with like legal fees, rezoning and some engineering plans and the whatnot. And so he was planning on paying um, that small, let's call it like the admin loan, the admin loan off once the construction loan came through. And so he wasn't planning on having it very long, probably like well under a year. And so in order to entice lenders who he planned on just having being like friends and like professional partners, he, I know he had reached out to some like realtor buddies and like lender buddies, just people in the real estate space. And he offered them an astronomical interest rate to make it worth their while. Like I'm talking over 50% interest rate. And because he saw that like, hey, this is a risky early stage investment uh, and it's a relatively small amount of a loan for the size of the project. And he thought, you know, no investors go into risk 10,000 or $50,000 to make a few hundred bucks return. Like that's just not worth their while. And so he worked with an attorney to create these loan docs for his lender friends who weren't, you know, experienced hard money lenders or private money lenders. And they weren't going to, you know, go pony up the legal expense to create these documents, which probably would have just, you know, eaten up a good chunk of their income anyway. But the the problem is, is that this interest rate that he was proposing would have basically been considered illegal. It was illegal. And so what would have happened to that investor if he stuck to his guns? What would have happened if he put this interest rate into the loan documents. And so where the issue I saw that would most likely arise is on default. And sadly for his unknowing lender buddies, everyone was going into this with the best of intentions, but I really don't think it was going to work out the way they had expected because, um, you know, imagine this, you're expecting a 50% return. And this developer dude decides to default. He stops making payments. He doesn't make any payment, whatever. And so you go to go enforce the note and a judge takes a look at it and thinks this is basically abusive. It's like an extortionist level amount of interest rate on it. It's like screaming the mafia. And maybe I just think mafia because I'm in New Jersey and you think it's reasonable. You as the, the lender, like, hey, this is, you know, we negotiated this. This was fair. He, he thought it was fair. Um, it's a riskier investment. But the judge doesn't care. There's laws on the books about this stuff. And the judge says, yeah, you'll get the, the loan enforced, she'll enforce the loan, but only at a reasonable interest rate of say like 12% or 15%. And you and the lender sit back and you know, you'll know you take whatever one you get, of course, but you think to yourself probably, man, I would have never signed up for this nonsense if that was all I was gonna get. And so all of that to tell you that you really gotta think about not just what makes a good incentive for a lender, but how will this actually hold up in court? And in fact, that's a question that I pose to all my students inside of Landlord Law School when they're moving through the investing spaces. You know, there's what would Jesus do? What would your grandmother think? And how would this hold up in court? And that is such a key question that you as a real estate entrepreneur need to ask yourself 
constantly, 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 when you're communicating with people, when you're making decisions or creating agreements is how will this hold up in court? Because if it doesn't pass the smell test, let me tell you, you gotta do better. And beyond just the documents is, you know, the operational part of lending. It's that part is, you know, just as much wrought with the, the legal pitfalls. You know, there's the collections, the defaults, the recording and so on, and it can be a mess. And one of the biggest lending messes I have ever seen came from a flipper who created what I can only describe as a Ponzi scheme. And so let me tell you a little bit about the risks of cross collateralization. And so this is a story about a girl named Unlucky. She was under contract to buy a flipped property only to find out in the title report right before closing. You guys know how title reports come in. It's usually like halfway through the, the transaction. Maybe this was, you know, two and a half weeks out from closing. And she finds out that the flipper actually owes hundreds of thousands of dollars more on the property than what it's worth, what she's paying for. And so she's, for example, buying this house for 700,000 and he owns a million dollars worth of loans on this. Talk about pulling the emergency brake on a deal. This one came to a screeching halt <laughs> and to my knowledge has not yet closed to this day, but it was you know, particularly unfortunate because this buyer had already sold her home and moved into what she thought would be a very, very short-term rental. Like we're talking like a two-month rental. <laughs> and now it was no end in sight for her to be paying a premium on this fully furnished rental that she's now stuck in with no end, end in sight. And so now you're probably scratching your head thinking, Bonnie, how in God's name does this happen? How does this flipper even create such of a mess? Like don't banks have appraisals and, you know, tell you what the house is worth before they'll lend you the money? And the answer to that is yes. Banks will do that, but people don't necessarily. This flipper was getting his financing through friends and family, friends and family. And he was basically tying this house up with a bunch of loans to fund the other properties he was flipping and then doing the same thing on other properties because he was a garbage flipper who couldn't manage his money or his jobs or his crew. And so now he had a bunch of properties he couldn't sell because they were all tied up with each other. He'd used, you know, two properties take a loan out on both of them to finance a third. And when you put a single loan on multiple properties secured by multiple properties, as it's known, that's called cross collateralization. And it's how borrowers can get to a certain like equity amount across multiple properties. And so say you want to have, you know, that 75 LTV, but we need $750,000 for easy math worth of that. But one property is worth uh, 500 and one property is worth 600. And so one property is not going to get us there. But if we cross collateralize, we put both properties on this mortgage, then we can reach the numbers we need to get the loan. And so that's essentially what this flipper was doing. And to unravel this situation, we basically had to attempt a short sale and get these lenders willing to take a loss on their loans. And let me tell you, mama, literally his mama didn't want to do that. Mama didn't. His brother didn't, his buddy didn't. And so this ended up in a lawsuit that, like I mentioned, I think is very much still ongoing. And I think some of this was because his lenders really didn't understand what was happening and didn't understand the risk of becoming, you know, second priority loan, third priority loan, fourth priority loan. Because if we were to go and foreclose on this property in some way, they would be getting pennies on the dollar, if anything, at that point. And so cross-collateralization is extraordinarily risky. You've got to have no need or intention to sell the property anytime soon or have a, an immediate plan for that payoff. And 
I don't know why a flipper would ever take this approach because that's what flippers do. Their whole point is to move properties quickly. And so I really don't know what this guy was doing other than really robbing Peter to pay Paul. And he just kept getting, you know, problems and taking out loans on other properties to deal with those problems. And he ended up in this big old mess. And so now that you know what you are not supposed to do, do not be this flipper. What should you be doing? Because the thing that I think is often lost in the mix with OPM is the P, the other person themselves. When it's a bank, it's, you know, a little less, little less scary. I won't say a whole lot less scary, but a little less scary at least. And definitely a whole lot less personal to default or to mess things up. Because the bank's not going to let the docs get messed up. And if you default, they don't care about you. <laughs> they will do not pass go and start that foreclosure button. And so there's, in the creative financing space though, you know, whether it's subject to or private money, hard money, seller financing, you name it, there's literally another person in all likelihood on the other side who is financially depending on your payment. So you've got to do it right. You've got to do it right. And you've got to know what type of loan you're creating. You know, is it secure to the property or not? And depending on that, you know, you may realize what kind of docs you need to line up. Like, are we creating trusts or promissory notes or a mortgage or a combination of things or deed and trust or something else? Because this stuff does vary slightly from state to state and you've got to understand what it means. You can't just take some approach that was taught in like a guru session or a seminar and just plug and play it. That's, it's going to end up with you being in the hot seat real quick because I've seen it happen. And you, you got to know what the terms in these documents mean. It's not enough just to have them. You've got to understand them for both sides. That way they can be honored. And look, things go wrong. People lose jobs or they die or they get sick in, you know, a once in a century pandemic or something. But things happen, but we have to do our best to prevent them. We have to, because in the OPM situation, in the borrowing money situation, particularly in creative financing, it is not just our skin anymore in this game. And I'll, I'll never forget it. I remember it was the first week of undergrad and I was in this business 101 class and it was taught by this adjunct professor who I hope, you know, maybe he is a listener. I don't think so. Brad Shuttleworth was his name. And he had no tolerance for just about anything. He was an adjunct professor, also a lawyer, and he hated late papers, tardiness to class, you name it. He said, there's always risk, but you always have to be prepared. And that stuck with me to this day. You know, people would say, oh, my dog died yesterday. I couldn't get you my paper. But he'd say, you know what? You have the whole semester to do it. Don't care. The train ran five minutes late, so I'm five minutes late. And he'd say to you, well, you shouldn't be taking the train that gets you here right on time. You need to have a buffer. And I'll admit, this is a very lawyer way to look at things and look at life. But you always do have to be prepared because there's rules to life. There's rules to real estate investing and the problems are known as well, guys. And if you're going to play in the game, then you don't get to play stupid and you don't get to play sloppy. And so even if it's your mom or your rich uncle, your best friend, and perhaps especially if it is them, you've got to do it by the book. Don't cut the legal corners because you've got this, you know, ingrained sense of trust because trust doesn't hold up in court and you'll destroy an important relationship in the end. You've got to get these documents, these agreements in writing. You've got to get them recorded if they are a secured type of loan. And you've got to get them executed properly, and they've got to have good legal terms in them. And you know, when it comes to the legal stuff, as you know, I like to say, the legal problems don't wait for you to get bigger. You can't wait 
to have your fifth deal or your 10th deal to start lining this stuff up and investing in legal. And if you're just now starting to peel apart, you know, this onion that is the legal stuff, then I want you to stick around because we have some really great episodes coming up starting with next week. Next week, I have the king of node investing, Scott Carson, on the podcast to share his thoughts about, you know, where the market's going from a lender's perspective, what legal mistakes he sees happening in the note investing space, and also how he has sourced hundreds of millions of dollars of notes over his decade plus investing in the note space. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss this really great conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you left me a five-star review. It really does help other real estate entrepreneurs like you find my show. And if it sparks some new questions about legally financing your portfolio, then as I mentioned at the beginning, hop on over to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Facebook group. Let me know your questions before I hit record in a few days. And again, to access any of the links or resources mentioned in this episode, just head on over to my website at bonniegallum.com forward slash 31 or using the link right there in your podcast app. Easy peasy. Take care and I will see you here next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now. If you want to continue the conversation, jump on over to the free Good Bones Real Estate Investing Facebook group. That's it for this episode of the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'll see you here next week, same time, same place. Until then, go out and build the real estate empire of your dreams. Thank you for listening to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast player to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. Now this lawyer's got to drop the fine print real quick. This podcast is educational and not intended to be legal tax or investing advice for you. Please speak with a local professional for specific advice unique to you and your situation. That's it for this episode. Bye for now.